This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and today we've got a twofer. First, we've got Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw back. He's been back here a lot to talk to us about Netflix, of course. Netflix had a meaningful week. A few days ago, they formally rolled out plans for their ad service, which launches early next month. And they also pleased Wall Street by adding subscribers instead of losing them this quarter. As always, Lucas can help us understand what that does and doesn't mean. And then I'm talking to someone who has not been on the podcast before, which is a real problem, and I'm glad I got to fix it. I talked to Julia Borston, who covers media and tech for CNBC. She's got a new book out. It's called When Women Lead, and it's about, well, you guessed it, it's about when women lead and why we still don't have nearly enough women leaders, particularly in business. I followed Julia's career for a long time. She started out at Fortune Magazine when I was over at Forbes. So I wanted to use this opportunity to talk about a lot of different stuff. We talk about her view of the companies she covers, why she wrote this book. But I also wanted to hear about how she broke into business news and how she made the leap from print to TV, because that is not a leap I will personally be making anytime soon. Okay, enough of me. Here's Lucas Shaw. I'm here with Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, our premier Netflix watcher, here to talk about a big week for Netflix. They rolled out their ad stuff this week, and they also dropped some earnings. Let's talk about all of that. But big picture, Lucas, I think probably the last time we talked, everyone everyone had written Netflix off for dead. Are they still dead, or have they risen from the grave? Uh, they are not dead. They are very much alive. But how strong they are, I think, is a subject of still great debate. They grew in the third quarter. They added a couple of million customers. They're going to grow again in the fourth quarter. They're not growing like they were two or three years ago or for that long extended peak that they had. But the the freak out that everybody had uh, earlier this year when they started shrinking uh, has has largely subsided. Their growth was almost all outside of the U.S. And I think in the U.S. they added like a few thousand subscribers. Um, it's possible that will come back uh, next quarter. But it seems like the thing that Netflix and a lot of other people said for a long time, which is we're sort of reaching the end of the number of people we can reach in the United States has come to pass. Um, does, does it surprise you that it's come at this time? Did you think they'd have more time to to find other subscribers? And as important, what does that mean for everyone else in streaming if Netflix has tapped out its growth in the US? They certainly thought that they would get to a few more people. I mean, look, if you, if you rewind five years or however long, I think the, the company put as its target sort of 60 to 90 million customers in the US. They're in that range, but at the lower end of it, because they've got about 75 million between the US and Canada. And I think Canada probably makes up for eight to 10 million people. So let's say they're in the mid to high 60s in the US. They certainly hope that they would get into the 80s. And I think they're still hoping that they can get growth back with this ad tier and the paid sharing and all the things that they're they're trying to do. But they're at a you know a, a majority, but not an overwhelming number of households in the U.S., and so that has to be a little bit disappointing. And it is troubling for some of these other companies that are copying Netflix and and trying to have the same success. I mean, the the bigger question, at least that I have about most of those other rivals, is not so much in the U.S., but whether they can 
get nearly as many customers as Netflix has outside of the U.S. It's really only Disney and Amazon that are even close. So my my takeaway, Netflix does these, these I think, very useful or at least interesting uh, shareholder letters every quarter that has they're written in English and they say, here's what's going on with our business. This one to me seemed like they were directly addressing all of the criticism that everyone in our world, everyone in Hollywood has been throwing at them over the last six months. My take is that everyone in Hollywood says, oh, Netflix is in trouble because they're not acting like Hollywood. Um, and then they go on to list all the things Netflix should change, like they should stop allowing their shows to be binged. And they should make better movies and, and put them in theaters, uh, et cetera. And my take on that was Netflix saying, yeah, yeah, we've heard all of that. And yes, we did make a huge pivot on ads, which we also said we never do. But everything else we're going to go ahead with. We're going to keep dropping all our shows at once mostly. We're going to keep making movies and putting them on Netflix. What, what did you make of the, the letter and the tone and, and sort of the general vibe of, of Netflix yesterday? So I, you you captured one part of it, which is which is dead on. Where yeah, they are not buying into the pessimism about streaming. They believe that there is plenty of growth left that may come in the form of two hundred million new subscribers. That may come in the form of charging their existing customer base more via ads and other things. But they're not ready to to give up on streaming. Nor do they want to embrace all of the kind of more traditional entertainment practices. The other thing that was was kind of interesting, which is where uh, where they where they started in some respects, is it's their their biggest push yet to get people to stop judging them based on subscriber growth. I've had folks at Netflix talk to me about trying to get Wall Street to pay attention to revenue and profitability, probably since 2016 or 17, and it just never took. You know, the company remained focused on subscriber growth. Wall Street remained focused on subscriber growth. Everything seemed to be about subscribers. But they've now reached a point where they realize that's going to be a faulty metric for them because they're going to have quarters like they had at the beginning of this year where maybe they stop growing or where the growth is slower. And they want to change the conversation to the metrics that make their service look better, which are one, revenue, because from a revenue perspective, they're way bigger than any of their rivals just in streaming, not more broadly, and profitability because they're the only streaming service that's profitable. It doesn't seem that they've convinced anyone of this yet yesterday. I mean, yesterday they reported numbers that were fine on that front, but the stock spiked because they added subscribers. There was a, a, a little imbroglio that was relevant to like 12 people on Twitter uh, a few months ago when Disney put out a release in which they quite pointedly uh, said, Here, here's our subscriber numbers. And they were like mildly above where Netflix was. And everyone said, Disney is double and triple counting. But the point was, D Disney was saying, hey, we're, we're, if you want to play the subscriber game, we're, we're, we're catching up or we're, we're equal. Um, and now Netflix is saying, no, let's play a different game, one where we judge ourselves based on, on profits and loss, where everyone else is losing a ton of money. Are you surprised at, as a, a longtime Netflix watcher that they haven't uh, kind of compromised on some of the more programming-centric categories, or I guess put a different way, because my assumption is your answer to that is no. Is there one, whether it's the binge model or the no theaters or the marketing or wh what have you, where you see them most likely to change their approach in the near future? It's hard to imagine how any of those things would really benefit Netflix. I mean, they're doing ads, which again, they when we'll talk about it in a second, which is a big deal because they swore they would never do it. And I think that's one of the reasons everyone freaked out last spring was Netflix said, this thing that we always promised we were never going to do, we're going to do. I would think that if they thought doing weekly episode drops would help them, they would do it. And my uninformed perspective is that the people who are complaining about binging are generally 
podcasters and Twitter people and and other studios who who like the weekly release model for their own purposes. Um, it doesn't seem like it helps a Netflix user. And on the movie end, the question I would have is, all right, so let's say they took The Gray Man, which is this lousy, very expensive movie they made this summer from the Russo brothers, and they put that in theaters. What would the upside be for Netflix? I, I'm, I'm unclear about that. Do you understand what that's supposed to – how that would help them? I guess for marketing reasons? Yeah, it depends who you talk to. I, I think the biggest one is marketing where there's a belief that you know the, a traditional movie you release – Disney puts out a movie in theaters and not only do they put it in theaters but they spend – 50, 100, 200 yep. million dollars marketing it. And so there's this whole campaign that means that even if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably heard of it and that you could do that and that would raise awareness and turn some of these movies into events because something like The Gray Man, I think people just feel like came and went and that's a waste of the 200 million dollars that Netflix spent on it. And then there's the financial argument, which is that you could, in order to justify spending all that money on marketing, you would make you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office, and it would make the title matter more when it got to streaming because you see the big movies at the box office then become quite popular when they are available on a streaming service. I am not savvy enough with with a balance sheet or at these companies to know if that investment would pencil out. And I think the Netflix counter to that, which I understand, is that the only movies that really work in theaters these days are kind of sequels and comic book movies and things that are branded, and Netflix doesn't have a bunch of those titles sitting around. They're mostly making originals. Right. They would like to make some of those. That's what the Gray Man is supposed to be, and there's going to be a Gray Man too, and they're going to keep trying to pull this off, and it's interesting that they have not been successful at it. But yeah, I don't know why sticking anything else besides that would help them at all, um, other than for awards and to placate directors, and they're already doing that. Um, right, they're going to put out Knives Out two for a week in theaters and Thanksgiving. Very few people will see it in theaters. Some people will. I'm at go because it's Thanksgiving weekend. It's, it's a nice thing to do, but it won't it won't help them beyond that. Yeah, so it's it's so it's interesting. I mean, um, we've got used to as Netflix watchers understanding what the company was serious about doing because they kept saying it over and over. Now all bets are off because they have changed uh, their mind on a couple things. So I don't want to say. Never. So let's talk about ads, which again is a big deal. You and a lot of other folks have, some other folks have done good reporting on this in advance. Netflix finally sort of rolled out their plans last week. Stock market like that too. Um, explain how the Netflix ad service will work. Uh, starting in early November, uh, people who live in, in 12 countries, including the US, will be able to pay for uh, or subscribe to an ad-supported version of Netflix, it will cost about $7 a month, at least in the US, which is less than half of the most popular Netflix plan now. You'll get five minutes or so uh, of advertisements per hour, and you will be able to watch most of the shows that you want to watch on Netflix, but not all. There will not be uh, some some programs just won't be on the service, um, and then there will be others that won't have ads in it. So new movies like The Gray Man. There might be a pre-roll ad, but there won't be ads that interrupt it. Kids programming will not have ads during the, the show. And that's the the gist of it. I mean, it's it's relatively straightforward. So Netflix, there's a couple different reasons Netflix would want to have an ad service. One is 
bring in people who are who are not paying for Netflix, either they're stealing Netflix, sorry, password sharing, or they're just not watching it at all and saying, well, if it was cheaper, would you watch it? Uh, another is to give people who might leave uh, a chance to trade down um, and and pay less, but but keep subscribing to Netflix. And the third is just to have more revenue come in full stop. What do you think is most important for Netflix in that list there? They would probably say new people because they have been relatively dismissive of the elevated churn or cancellations that they've had. Not, to, I mean, they've acknowledged it, but but they don't. They still argue that their churn is way better than others, and so I think for them, it's about appealing to more people. I would probably say that it's tied with the the cancellation part. Um, where you you do have there is a segment of the population, especially right now with inflation and macroeconomic concerns, who's looking at that Netflix subscription and wondering if they really want to pay that much. And just strategically, long term, this gives them an alternative. It used to be you either paid for Netflix or you didn't. And now that when when you get to that cancel button, they can say, well, how about you you pay for fifty percent? You know, generating extra revenue is great, and they do say that they'll probably make as much, if not more, from an ad-supported customer as a regular one. But those that's sort of an ancillary benefit to the fact that if they just increase the number of people who are using the service, they make more money. Netflix surprised a lot of people when it announced it was working with Microsoft as its partner. Netflix doesn't have any ad infrastructure or ad sales. People starting to hire them finally. But it went out and it told Wall Street, we're going to do ads. They had no infrastructure. And they basically just said, we're going to rent it from Microsoft. Actually, Microsoft is going to pay us a lot of money for the privilege of serving us ads. We don't know what Microsoft's total commitment is, but people tend to think it's billions of dollars over several years. One of the questions a lot of people have that I've talked to is, what is Microsoft getting out of this? Because no one believes that Netflix is going to continue to work with Microsoft down the road, that if Netflix is going to have an ad service, it's going to own that its ad service. So what does Microsoft get out of boosting Netflix's entry into ads? Well, they're trying to build an ad service of their own. They have a $10 billion ad business, but none of that is really video centric. They bought Xander, which was this uh, ad unit of AT&T that they never turned into much of anything. And they clearly want to become a player in video advertising. You know, they're now competing with Google and Facebook and Amazon in the the kind of uh, in the online advertising market and video is one of the most important and fastest growing sectors and being aligned with Netflix is like the ultimate bragging right you know it's it's you start with other than YouTube the biggest player in online video and you can use that to to do deals with major agencies and you can also do that I I presume to try and sign up other business and convince people to work with you instead of a Comcast or a, a, a Google. So it's a multi-billion dollar loss leader to get, get other ad people in the door. When Netflix announced the formally announced the ads last week, they said, here's what an ad would look like. <laughs> here's what a, in a screenshot, and then there was a clip, and they demonstrated it for us. And we don't, we don't need to sort of paint a picture for you because you've all seen an ad on TV or streaming and the Netflix ad looks exactly But it's the same. different when it's on Netflix. It's different when it's on Netflix. So they, to, to their credit, they're not trying to dress it up as a new innovation. But they are saying we want to break through in advertising. We want to pioneer new formats. Do you think that's important to them and they eventually will disrupt advertising in a fundamental way? Or do you think they'd be happy enough to run the same sort of pre-rolls that everyone else runs and everyone else puts up with? 
anyone with a video service would like to make the advertising experience better. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you use any ad supported sure. streaming services, but it is not fun to use them. Generally, the ad experience is pretty crappy. You see either the ad load is too high, you're seeing the same ads over and over again. I just nobody likes advertising. It's why Netflix became popular in the first place. Um, or one of the reasons Netflix became popular in the first place. So I'm sure that the team at Netflix would would love to find a way to make that experience better. And if they could, it would you know further cement their reputation as a customer first company, and it would mean that people would spend a lot of money with them. Whether they can actually do it, you know, a lot of people have come in and tried to change things, and then they just end up looking like regular TV because there's just a tremendous amount of inertia, and there's only so much you can do with advertising. But I'm sure that they will conduct tests and try things. And that's one of the reasons that they've they've begun to hire people, even though they're not going to probably oversee their own ad business for at least a couple of years. My ad for Lucas Shaw is that he's excellent and you can follow him on Twitter and on Bloomberg. And it'd be weird if you listen to this podcast and don't get Lucas's screen time newsletter every Sunday because it's free. Um, anything else I missed, Lucas? A lot of Dodgers tweets. If you're into that, uh, no, I'm 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 refusing to talk about baseball until next year. I when people bring it up in conversation, I just stare back at them until they change the subject. I wish I could say I'm sorry, but I never have sympathy for big market teams that that lose. Um, Lucas Shaw, I'm delighted to have you on the show again. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Lucas Shaw. In a minute, we'll be talking to Julia Borston. But first, a word from the sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I've been following Julia Burston's career for decades. Sorry, Julia. Uh, first when she was a reporter at Fortune Magazine, and then when she went to CNBC, where she's their lead reporter on tech and media. I've also had the pleasure of working with her at conferences we host over at Recode. She's great on that. And now I've had the pleasure of reading her new book, When Women Lead. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of this podcast. You just told me you're angry that you've never been on before. I love this podcast. I love talking to you. I, I'm excited to do it on the podcast. I, I, I want to come back. You write a book, you can come on, and then okay. you can come on other times. We will talk about your book, When Women Lead, but you cover media and tech just like me. This is a podcast about media and tech. I want to talk to you about some companies and ideas in the news. I'm talking to you a couple days after Mark Zuckerberg announced his newest set of, of Metaverse VR goggles and, and, and other software he's rolling out. And everyone's laughing because he said he's going to introduce legs into Horizon Worlds, his, his Metaverse. But how much patience is Wall Street going to have for a project that Mark Zuckerberg says is going to cost him $10 billion a year for multiple years, many years to manifest and doesn't really have yet a, a, a business plan? I mean, it's just sort of an idea that he there's a thing he wants to build that's going to cost a lot of money. He's using his existing business to fund that. How long is Wall Street going to let him do that? Well, look, he's made it very clear that his metaverse vision is a 2030 vision. And look, what is that, eight years away now, less than eight years away? So I think that um, he's trying to remind people that this is a long-term investment. Near term, this is a stock that will trade on advertising revenue growth, period, full stop. We saw declining revenue growth. That was a horrible thing for uh, meta shares. I should say I still call it Facebook. Apologies. But I think that going forward, the real 
question is, how well are they navigating the Apple operating system changes in all these new ad formats that they've announced just in the past couple of weeks? Are they working? And how do consumers feel about Facebook and Instagram versus TikTok? TikTok is this machine tripling revenue, uh, tripling, you, you know, engagement, tripling revenue growth year over year. I'm sure the numbers are even bigger than that because we don't have that transparency. But the big question for Facebook and its success in a lot of ways hinges on the success of TikTok and its ability not just to draw consumers, but also those ad dollars. So I'm watching those Facebook revenue numbers. And also one number I always love to look at in those Facebook earnings are the U.S. daily and monthly active users. Which they, is stalled out. They have, but they started growing again. It so for a couple a bit, for yeah. a couple quarters they declined and then they've sort of flatlined and then they started ticking up again. When those US, North America, DAU and MAU numbers decline, Facebook's in trouble. When they start to tick up, then you're thinking, okay, they're doing something right with the way they're they're managing the formats. Zuckerberg said something interesting to uh, Ben Thompson from Stratechery uh, this week. He said, Yeah, I, I miss TikTok. I didn't really understand what they were doing, I thought that people wanted to consume things that their friends suggested. And it turns out, actually, just give them a feed of stuff you suggest, they'll consume that, which is now what they're trying to do at Instagram and Facebook. They're quite clear. They, they say everything but we're tick copying TikTok, but they're copying TikTok. Facebook is very comfortable copying stuff. And in the past, sometimes it's been pretty successful. Stories is the most obvious yeah. example. But look, they also need to not totally frustrate the people like me who like seeing pictures from their friends, right? So they have to be, t they have to keep on being wanna, Instagram and yes. they have to also be like TikTok at the same time. They have to be two things at the same time. Do you think they will be able to replicate TikTok well enough to either slow down TikTok's growth or increase their own growth? I mean, there's so many unknowns in there, including what does TikTok do? I would love to interview TikTok CEO. I've put in requests. Hopefully <laughs> someone will, will, will be able to do that interview. But I think the interesting thing is I don't think it's just about replicating TikTok. It's about satisfying those users like Kim Kardashian who are saying don't change Instagram too much. So it's really about being all things. And I, um, you know, it's like playing around on the app. Those reels uh, are pretty addictive. I mean, they're mostly TikToks. Yeah, or that are that are reformulated. Yeah. Uh, but I think that it's it's also the question about the ads in there and how do they make those ads effective. Um, I don't know how well the ads are doing on TikTok. I talked to a lot of CMOs about this, and they see TikTok as this experimental yep. platform, and everyone wants to try it out, and you could totally get that. But we don't know yet sort of what the ROI is on those TikTok ads, whereas Facebook has done a pretty good job of trying to measure it. They had a setback. Um, you know, from the Apple iOS change. But Facebook does have this track record of at least understanding how to deliver those ROI numbers. I think half our audience knows this and half may not, half may still believe that like, the, the line about, you know, you know, you know 50 percent of your advertising is wasted. We just don't know which half that is. The reason Facebook was so successful for so many years is particularly for, I think, a lot of small businesses in the sense like Facebook PR. But it's true. We're able to figure out how to tweak that system to really dial it down and figure out I can give Facebook a dollar and I'll get a dollar fifty yeah. in return. And that way I can do drop shipping of crummy t-shirts. Yeah. Or, but, or and you know when someone's clicking on your ad and when they make a purchase. To have that information is so valuable. And brand advertising, they're trying to you know identify whether that's working as well. Um, but certainly for direct response, Facebook was a game changer for many companies. You have a lot of access to a lot of CEOs and powerful people. I'm curious, again, I'm curious about vibes from you. Um, when you're talking to them, not on camera, we think it can be a little more unvarnished. 
how do they how are they feeling about consolidation and sort of the tectonic plates that are moving under their feet? Are they feeling like they understand what they need to do and they just need to accomplish the following thing, or is it a lot of general sort of confusion? I think a lot about the fact that there's supposed to have been this big wave of consolidation in TV and video going back five years ago, and it really hasn't happened yet. Well, I think the the underlying issue before you even talk about consolidation is the economy, right? And what's going to happen, A, with advertising and B, with consumer spending. And I think those factors will influence consolidation. Um, so for instance, you know, if people cut down on the number of streaming services they have dramatically, then we will definitely see consolidation among those streaming services. If the economy were, you know, going guns blazing and everything was on fire and advertising was through the roof, these streaming services would all be able to sustain as standalone services for longer. So I think that's the big question. I'm really curious to see how consumers respond to this economic downturn compared to past ones. Historically, consumers have really stuck with their entertainment spending. You did not spending. turn off your cable TV even during In 2008, 2009. The worst of a recession. You, you would never you would hang on to your cable bundle and you would go out to the movies. Movie going has traditionally been really recession resistant and, in fact, really resilient in those times. So obviously fewer films are getting theatrical releases now. Are people going to still go out? We saw people go out in massive numbers to Top Gun Maverick. So I think there's this question of is movie going this sort of safe haven or are people going to stay home because they have so many more streaming options than they did in 2008, 2009? So I think there are these fundamental consumer questions. Right. And then when it comes to the streaming options, right, like it's – very easy to pause your Netflix yeah. or your Hulu. You're allowed to get back in. I think eventually you're going to see the streamers try to lock you in for new a year kinds of, time of bundles. Yeah, so you don't churn out of that. But this is the first time when lots of people have these options that are very easy to swap out for one another. And maybe just say, I I need to buy gas this month. I'm dropping HBO. Or, or I binge all of my favorite shows on Netflix, uh-huh. and so I'm going to drop Netflix and then go to another another streamer. But For that very reason, I think that we're going to see all of these streamers move away from the binge model. I believe the binge model will be dead a year from now, if I could make that bold prediction, because – if people have the option of binging and then and then canceling the service, these all of these platforms would be much smarter to drip feed their episodes out to consumers the way Apple TV Plus and and HBO Max do. They know that people are going to keep watching for the next episode of Succession rather than um, binging. They can't binge the whole thing and drop it. So I think that's going to be another factor to watch as we watch this sort of recessionary pressures. But the other thing in terms of M and A is that one of the prime prime players here would be Paramount. Sherry Redstone controls Paramount. Those assets are incredibly valuable. If you look at the puzzle pieces, and if Sherry Redstone doesn't want to sell or isn't open to doing a deal, then that one is off the table. And then the other one that would be a a fascinating one to watch, of course, is Warner Discovery. David Zaslav has a lot of debt. He has a big agenda of how many billions of dollars he needs to cut. But I think it'll be at least another year before he's in a position where that could that piece could be in play. Right. And and the very, very conventional wisdom now uh, on both coasts is that that will eventually get merged with Comcast slash NBCU in some version of combination. Unclear who's going to buy who and what has to get sold off. Um, but that's the, that's the marriage that everyone kind of wants to There's, see. 
there's been a I don't lot. Know if it's good for consumers. But yeah, but there's been a lot of speculation of that. And speaking of good for consumers, what happens with the regulatory landscape? The fact that regulators were so critical of Amazon buying MGM, which really does not seem like it would have any impact and be negative for consumers. Obviously, they let that go through. But the fact that there were questions about that, I heard a lot of rumblings and people I was talking to saying, well, if that sales, you know, getting scrutinized and we're going to have to be really careful about what we try to do. I think it would be very difficult for a big tech company to buy a giant media asset. And I think it's not a coincidence that buying MGM meant they're not buying a thing that has news. They're not buying a thing that touches sports. Those are big triggers politically. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the other assets either – if you want to buy a Paramount, for instance, I think you might end up having to like spin out the local TV stations and whoever acquires them is going to say that's going to be – that's going to remain something separate. Yeah. We'll see. By your standards on TV, I think this is a long conversation. I think we would I already be off I love having air. long conversations. Tell, tell me about your job, which is not usually involved having long conversations. What you, Like I said, you started- Not long conversations on TV. On TV. Yes. You started off as a writer at Fortune. And again, I was clocking yes. your byline because I was working at Forbes, so I paid attention to who was covering what. And you were doing really well. Big stories, cool covers- to me, that was the that was that was the, the the pinnacle of what you could do in journalism. And then you went to TV. Why did you start off at, at in magazines, and why did you go to TV? So I, it never occurred to me that I was going to be a TV reporter. I'm very lucky I landed here. But um, I was always in uh, on on the newspaper. I worked on the newspaper in high school and college. I was one of those kids who I, I'm sure you worked on the high school college newspaper. I was yes. asked to, to leave the the, <laughs> the high school newspaper. But yeah, I did the college newspaper. I loved um, working on the newspaper, and I sort of assumed I would go to grad school. And and work in international relations and not in the news business. But I deferred grad school. I applied to probably 25 magazines, news publications. You had a White House internship? I, had I, read a, in your I was book. a White House intern. I was a State Department intern and I was really interested in policy. But I was like, oh, before I go to grad school, I'll go work in a magazine in New York. All my friends were moving to New York. So I applied to a bunch of magazines and I got a reporter offer from Fortune. I had never taken econ. I didn't think I would find business news interesting, but it was the best of the options um, at hand. I was like, okay, I'll try this out. And I I reminded them that I hadn't studied econ or statistics or accounting. And they said, oh, we don't hire business people. We have a whole theory that you can't teach a business person how to write, but you can teach a journalist about business. That's very true. Everyone thinks, by the way, or at least they used to when I was with Forbes, it's, oh, you must have a business degree or no, no one who works at those mag. Very few people have any sort of business But you know degree. what? I do think the fact that I was very cognizant of the fact that I didn't know the business landscape actually made me overprepare and turned out to be a huge advantage. I spent so much more time reading SEC documents, pouring through analyst notes, reading annual reports because I thought I have to to prove that I'm learning this business stuff. And I also got to work with some legendary editors, including Carol Loomis, who is an amazing business writer legend and who really taught me how to dig through those SEC documents. And so I, I think I overcompensated and then that, that ended up working to my advantage. But the way I ended up on TV is because at the Time Inc., which included Fortune magazine, was owned by the same company that owned CNN. It was Time Warner back in the day. And they would have reporters from the magazines come on and talk about actual their stories. Synergy. Yeah, actual old school synergy. So they um, invited me to come on and talk about some of my stories and I didn't get nervous. And so the mere fact that I didn't get nervous 
um, prompted this whole, you know, becoming a contributor to CNN and CNN headline news. And I ended up when I was at Fortune for those six years, most most of that time, I was doing um, a couple segments a week as a sort of Q&A format on CNN headline news. And then that led to CNBC inviting me on. And then they they offered me a full-time job. Print people used to have sort of a love-hate thing about TV, right? They dismissive of it because it's superficial and quick hits. Well, this is especially back in the print days, but also it's glamorous and that's where the money is. I think that mixed view continues. What were your perceptions of TV getting into it and what's the reality like? So I um, found it a totally different muscle. When I was going on TV as a print reporter, I would go and do Q&As. So I would have a topic, some Wall Street story of the day. I'd give them a couple questions. They'd ask me questions and it would just be a conversation. Then when I switched over to TV, and by the way, I didn't know I would fall in love with it. I was like, oh, I'll go work in TV for a year and then I'll go back to the magazine world. First of all, the magazine world did not exist even a year after I left Fortune. It continued to shrink and it's been a sort of a very challenging time for the magazine industry, I would say. Um, So I was lucky to leave in 2006 when I did. But I really fell in love with TV and found that it's a different kind of writing. I was writing multiple thousand word articles and it transitioned from what I had been doing, which was just answering questions to writing scripts that are 90 seconds long. You're thinking about the visual elements, about the graphics you're going to make and then delivering them in a way that people can understand what you're saying, whether they're driving or whether they're listening to you in the background or whether they're really focused on what you're saying. So I found it a totally different muscle, but really interesting and challenging in an amazing way. And so I've been there. I've been at CNBC for 16 years, so I clearly love my job. You guys are basically the paper of record TV form, right? Someone has earnings. They come talk to yeah. you as the earnings hit, right after they hit. Those are kind of baked in. How can you use that so you know you're going to get access to Reed Hastings? Well, or you, well. By the way, Reed hasn't done an interview in a very long time. Okay. So, um, but you, I mean, I still think you have to fight for those interviews. So you still have to fight for them, but they're not doing TV anywhere else. I, we do not. We CNBC has a policy where we want to make sure people come and talk to us first. So there is a first on CNBC policy, but you there's will also always, nowhere else to go. Yeah, we're fair. the best. So CNBC what, is so awesome. How do you leverage? You know, you're going to get access to a bunch of people multiple times a year. How do you get? How do you leverage that to get more than? whatever they want to say on the day of earnings. How are you extracting additional value out of that as a reporter? I like to be overprepared. <laughs> I'm an obsessive homework doer and overprepared. You started, you started pinging me about this book like three months ago. I think you were still finishing. Um, I, um, I think it's really trying to figure out what the questions are in that moment that everyone wants to hear. I always think about this like, yes, there are earnings, right? Yes, there's what just was reported yesterday. But what are the big picture questions that everyone is curious about? So like for Disney, like, is it about pricing at the parks? Is it about the the willingness of consumers to buy things at the parks? Is it about, you know, the outlook? You know, sort of like what is the big picture beyond just the immediate headline? You have very quick hits with these folks. They don't give you a lot seven, of time. Usually there are seven to 12 minutes. Anyone who succeeds at the point where they can run a company like Disney or any other big company is then – learns how to not answer questions they don't want to answer. You're on TV. That's why you ask follow-ups. So how, how do you extract, how do you get someone off a talking point? How do you get someone to tell you something that you actually want to know? Because you don't have like, well, I mean, I, like 40 minutes. Well, you've watched my interviews. We get people to tell things. They don't. So I think it's all about asking very pointed follow-ups, which are not things that you could prepare ahead of time. It's about listening and 
and being able to jump in at the right moment and ask a follow-up. I actually find it much easier to interview people in person because there's body language. They see that you're about to to ask a question. And obviously, we did so many interviews during the pandemic um, virtually, which was great because we had amazing access to people. But I do think that um, being able to really listen and ask those follow-ups and know the right moment to jump in where you're not interrupting someone, but when they're taking a breath, you could say, okay, wait, what about that thing you just said? It's funny. I was doing when I did this Netflix uh, series podcast series a couple of years ago. I, I remember all this stuff that I knew Reed Hastings had said, and at least half the time they were conversations with <laughs> yes. you that we ended up. Signing. Reed used to talk to me all the time. He hasn't done an interview in a while. Reed, he, if you're listening, let's do another interview. He used to be much more accessible. He used to be much more accessible. Things have changed a little bit. Let's talk about the book. It's called When Women Lead. I'm going to summarize it as. Half profiles of, of successful women leading businesses, often tech ones, but not exclusively. And then half you sort of explaining why there should be many more women leading organizations and, and what should be done about it. And also explaining what it is that those women are doing. When I I started off wanting to tell the stories of these amazing women because I had interviewed uh, women within my role at CNBC. And obviously women were in the tiny minority, but those women had succeeded despite crazy odds. Last year, female founders got 2% of all venture capital funding. So the women I was interviewing many times had gotten a bit of that 2% and were thriving despite what I had seen as every sort of bar being stacked against them. Why did you want to write this book? There's been a lot of work about, about inequity in the workplace. There have been famous books about getting women to to be more proactive, Sheryl Sandberg, Lean in, yeah. famously. What hole did you think you were filling with this book? So I was interviewing these amazing founders and, and CEOs and executives, and I realized that people did not know their stories. Or maybe they had heard of a founder like Whitney Wolford, the CEO of Bumble, but they didn't know how she got there, how she had managed to succeed despite those odds. Also, no one has gathered all the data about the ways in which women do lead and the ways in which they're successful and what those leadership traits are. So there are a lot of books that are inspiring people to lean, to lean in or to have more confidence, but no one has really put together the case studies and the examples of these inspiring women. So I, I found, frankly, I was so inspired by these people myself, and I love talking to them. And after we would get off air, I'd say, wait a second, like, how did you not get discouraged? You said you rejected a hundred times. Like, what inspired you to keep on going? Or why did you decide to take this approach? So I was so curious to learn from them. So I start off wanting to tell their stories, but that's what led me to the data. I realize we have to be able to articulate what these characteristics are that are so effective so we can understand why both women- So you women think there are common linkages between these successful women yeah. beyond the fact that they're women? So there's tons of research about how women leaders are more likely to lead with certain traits, with certain approaches. And those characteristics, lots of academic studies have found, are incredibly valuable, not just for women, but for everyone. And I actually think that the pandemic has shed light on the importance of some of these more traditionally female leadership traits, such as empathy, leading with empathy, vulnerability, um, the ability to pull together perspectives from across a team, and this idea that everyone's going to be more successful if they're not leading in a top-down way, but talking to people on the ground and bringing together those diverse perspectives. So that's why I think this is a book not just for women to read, but for everyone to read. You know, we're in the media industry. We love this idea of outliers. How does someone manage to be an outlier? What have they done to succeed and be in a tiny percentage of people who have found success? 
These women are those outliers. Did you find any reticence or questions from the women you were talking to when you said, hey, I want to talk to you. I'm doing this book. Great. It's about women in yeah. business. And they yeah. said, I don't want to be in the women business. Yeah, book. this is something that um, that I really grappled with. And I talked about it with female VCs. I talked about it with female founders and this idea of like, I don't want to be characterized as a female journalist. I'm a journalist. Uh, they don't want to be seen as female CEOs. They're just CEOs. And same thing is true of VCs. So I really struggled with that. And that held me back for a while of trying to figure out how to make this book work. But what I realized is, Female CEOs are 8.5% of the Fortune 500. That is an all-time high. Female founders are routinely torn down by the media. The most dominant image of a female CEO in the tech space, Elizabeth Holmes. People don't know about the other amazing examples of female leadership. And so I thought, yes, women don't want to be characterized by the fact that they're women. They just want to be known for their success. But until there is a little bit more representation in the business space, we're going to need to highlight their successes to turn the idea of being a female CEO from being a criticism of female CEO Elizabeth Holmes to being a compliment. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. I'm glad you brought it up. The 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 perception that women are torn down in the media when when their business fails, right? And I can think of several high profile examples, at least high profile in, in my tech and media space, right? Yeah. I'll leave Elizabeth Holmes out for a second. Yeah. But the people in a way or rent the runway, and their their company stumbles because companies stumble. The story gets written up, and then one of the immediate things you hear and see from people like you, people on Twitter, and people I respect including you, saying this is an unfair story. These women are getting torn down because they're women. It's salacious and men wouldn't be treated the same. Well, by the way, I haven't said that about it. I I don't I just generally don't comment on these things for that very reason. But that has been a a common thread. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I think it depends on the situation. You know, it's so circumstantial. Each of these situations is so different. But there was this concept that I learned about in reading 300 academic studies of token theory. Whenever someone is in a minority, if there's one woman in a group of 50 men, one black person in a group of 50 white people, that person is going to draw exaggerated attention and exaggerated criticism. It makes sense that these women are drawing heightened criticism because everyone's like, oh, there's the one woman. Let's figure out what she's doing. Is she doing it right? Is she doing it wrong? People are going to be more critical of the one person who stands but out. But they're also going to pay more attention, I guess, on the flip well, side, right? That's, I mean... Part of what I'm think about when I when I read these stories and I see the criticism is there's lots of men who run failing companies who screwed up who don't get written about at all because no one cares about them to begin with. And in large part, I think a lot of these companies are consumer facing. So there's an audience that knows what rent the run, runway is or what wing is or yeah. what away suitcases are. And they say, oh, I'm interested in that. If you said, oh, this guy running a plastic extrusion company in New Jersey was you know fucked up. No one's going to read that story. But so I think a lot of it comes down to this idea that women are expected to be nurturing. And women are, I mean, I have a whole chapter in here on women are judged more harshly and also how they are resilient in the face of that. And like there's a laundry list of ways in which women face double standards. They are judged more harshly if they use humor in the workplace. They're judged more harshly if they show emotion in the workplace, including anger. They're judged more harshly when they give negative criticism to their employees. So like a laundry list of ways that both men and women hold female leaders to a double standard. They are hated if they do not demonstrate nurturing. They are criticized for succeeding in a male-dominated field. I mean, the list goes on and on. I do think that women face more scrutiny because they are unusual and more criticism because they are not acting in a stereotypical 
female nurturing way. Most of those takedowns of female leaders were for the fact that they were not demonstrating nurturing. And I'm thinking specifically about the away Slack messages. But, but you know, they were, it wasn't They were just, harsh. No, but they, they were harsh. They were, it was bad management. Yeah, yeah, she was, was doing bad a management. bad job. She yes, wasn't was that not she wasn't management. being supportive. Yes, she yes, was being a bad but manager. But she was being a bad manager specifically in a way that contradicted the stereotype that women are supposed to be nurturing. So that specific contrast is what throws people off. There is so much research about the fact that when female lead, when when a company, woman is appointed CEO of a company, and there is specific media attention to the fact that she's a woman, the stock declines in that first two days. Over time, the stock goes up again and actually typically outperforms male CEOs. But the media attention on the CEO's femaleness causes a decline in the stock. I'm going to guess that a significant chunk of our audience is kind of like me and that they know that diversity is a good idea. They look over, they hear the stats that you're reeling off about eight and a half percent women leading Fortune 500 companies, very, very few of them getting tech funding. That's bad. Something should be done about it. And that either they don't really know what they in particular can do about it or even in places like I book a podcast. Um, a lot of men on my podcast, not nearly as many women. That's why you um, have to have me back again. I'll have you back again. Um, but so here's I'm, the thing. I'm aware of it, yeah, but, but there's also usually reasons that I'm having the people yeah, come on the podcast. And uh, same thing with, with conferences, right? There was only a handful of women who run companies. Look, if 82% of all venture capital funding goes to all male founding teams, those are the companies that you're going to want to have on your podcast. But I actually have to say, here's why it's bad. It's not bad because it's morally reprehensible not to invest in women or have diversity. It's bad because it's financially stupid not to have diversity. And there's so much research about how companies with women on their boards perform better. Companies with female CFOs perform better. Companies with, you know, public companies with female CEOs perform better. Private companies that are led by women or co-ed teams, they outperform Financially. So I think that's what I'm I mean, I'm a business reporter. I'm not arguing for the ethical importance of women. I'm talking about the financial importance. It's bad. And these companies would perform better if they were more diverse for a 100%. bunch of different reasons. Well-meaning people and companies are still struggling with this, you know, and they'll say, well, we've got a pipeline problem and people don't want to hear that. But what are practical things that someone who's leading a company or someone like a Peter Kafka who's hosting a podcast can do to improve things for the world? I have increasingly become obsessed with data. I said, when I was a young Fortune magazine reporter, I sort of was starting to dip my toe into those waters, going deep into the SEC documents. I read 300 academic studies that were chock full of data. And I realized in reporting this book and also in talking to CEOs that the solution to most things is to use data to pull out bias, to remove bias. There are amazing, for instance, like hiring is still in almost every field largely reliant on the resume, which is an outdated way of figuring out someone's potential. You cannot understand someone's potential. You can only understand their socioeconomic background and what kinds of experiences they had access to. If you use these data-driven hiring tools, you could say, what are their soft skills? What are they capable of learning? And I think that same approach holds true with everything. The companies that have done a good job at pay equity and equity in promotion are the ones that do it with data. I've, I've reported on how like PayPal and Salesforce have both committed 
to pay and promotion equity. And what they realized is like they may be equalizing pay from like a level of like what level people are, you know, what, what job title, et cetera. But if men are getting promoted faster than women, then that's specious. It doesn't matter if you're paying people the same if men are getting promoted twice as fast. But there are systems to track this stuff and systems to make sure that when managers are inv- evaluating their employees, they're not you know, thinking, oh, hey, this guy bugged me for a raise. Oh, I should give him a raise. You know, they're really doing it in a systematic, data-driven way. And because the data points to the value of diversity, I'm optimistic that once companies really figure out how to have their own data-driven systems, they will become more diverse. You rolled your eyes when I mentioned the pipeline excuse. But that's definitely a thing that people will still They'll talk say that, about yeah. in person. And they won't use words like pipeline. They'll say, I really wanted to find someone who wasn't a white man to fill this position. Yeah. And sometimes it's a woman who's telling me this. But yeah. This is this is who we could pick from. This is who was available. That's the reality. And that they don't use the word pipeline, but yes. that's what they're talking about. But it's about. interesting because if you look at why more women are not reaching this most senior ranks of companies, it's less a pipeline problem because men and women are starting at the same ranks, at the same level at the early ranks. But it's what they call um, a broken rung in the ladder. And actually, McKinsey and Lean In, which they do an annual survey, they did an amazing study of how women and men start at the same level. They even start to rise at the same level. But then once you get to a certain level, maybe women take some time off to have kids. Um, maybe they don't rush back into the workforce. If you if you miss a step on that rung, you never get to the top. And I think that that actually, if you're talking about leadership, is a bigger problem than the pipeline problem. But also, if you look at like, we're going to talk pipeline, women are more represented in graduating from college, graduating from grad school. I think the only type of grad school where men and women, women do not exceed men is in business schools. And women are still making gains in their representation in business school, you know, graduations. And also the other thing in terms of the pipeline problem, so many of these skills, whether it's coding or, you know, a facility and working with technology, a lot of that stuff can be taught. So yes, obviously you need a certain number of engineer engineering majors, computer science majors, but a lot of these other tech jobs are things that can be taught or learned in a, you know in these boot camps that a lot of these companies are starting to have. You've been asking people questions professionally for a couple decades. Now you're on the other other side. What have you learned about being an interviewee? Uh, it's weird. <laughs> um, it's fun. I look, I really love talking about these subjects. I loved writing this book. I found it so inspiring. I was so surprised by the data and the research and also these stories. It was just really fun for me. So it's just been fun to get out there and uh, and get to talk about the book. But also, I feel like I always talk to you off off camera, if you will, and we we talk shop. So it's nice to be able to do it in front of a microphone. Yeah, I, we, we did talk about this for months because you're like, can't we just do this on Zoom? Like, no, no, we're going to get yeah. you in the studio. So then you better. can see me rolling my eyes when you talk about it's a pipeline problem. Yeah. <laughs> Julie Borson, I'm glad you wrote this book. I'm glad you came in. We will have you back before you write another book. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks again to Julia. Thanks again to Lucas Shaw. Thanks again to Travis and Jelani, who I'm looking at from across the window of the podcast studio recorded in person. Fantastic. Uh, Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our sponsors for sponsoring. This is Recode Media. We'll be back next week with two shows, if all goes well. So keep your fingers crossed, and we'll see you soon.